Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we're going to talk about a UEFI bug that's affecting ThinkPads, among other computers, how you can take over a crappy Windows system, even if it's encrypted, and the shortcomings of MD5. All that plus the feedback and the roundup on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone and welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, episode 274, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly system administration podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. You can check out the live stream at jblive.tv, which is powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Did I do that right? Did I do that right, Yes. Something like that. <laughs> My name is Noah, and joining us every week is Mr. Alan Jude. Hey, Alan, how are you? Hey, Chris. You're not Chris. I'm not. I'm Hi, not. Noah, how are you? I'm not, but that's probably going to be happening all day, and that's yeah. perfectly all right. So, Alan, how was your week? I, I have to tell you, at some point, we're going to have to have a powwow about Japan, because I spent a ton of time in Tokyo and and, uh, and and around Kyoto area, and I fell in love with not only the not only the area, but the culture and the people and the language and and basically everything about Japan. Yep, uh, you know, there's a reason I go there once a year now. <laughs> and put as often as I can, but <laughs> well, part of that is because you like BSD, right? Yeah, but you know. Uh, there are conferences other places every once a year, and I don't always go to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm finding I'm like finding Japan's on my like always going there list. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I might have to join you just for the uh, for the purpose of making it back there. I'll tell you what was really awesome was taking my uh, my, I have a new ThinkPad. I I don't know if you, I told you I have the the new uh, X260. Ooh, series. Skylake. Yeah, Skylake, which is their ultimate portable uh, computer. So it's a 12.8 inch display, uh, 1080p resolution, Core i7, um, six gen Intel graphics, and it's it's an absolutely amazing machine. Except then I we sit down to do TechSnap this week, and I learn that uh, the uh, Lenovo is actually having some problems in uh, the yeah. in the in the firmware with their uh, with their systems, and and so we're gonna yes. dive into that deep and talk yeah. about that. Um, so yours probably looks something like this. It this does. This is the X220, which is just the the Ivy Bridge version yep. of the same thing. Yeah. So this so the, mine's the, got the old keyboard. Though. I th yeah, I actually like the old keyboard board uh, a lot better because they have tried so, to click yeah. chiclet style this thing, and I hate it. Oh. Uh, so my uh, I have a T530, which is uh, the one generation newer. So that's actually it's Ivy Bridge. Sorry, this is Sandy Bridge here. The X220 is Sandy Bridge. Uh, anyway. Sorry, distraction. Anyway, yes. Well, no, so the but news your, your came main, out of your main this. computer is a ThinkPad as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we got the, tons of ThinkPads between the two yeah. of us. All of yeah. I have three of them in the room with me. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so yes, the news story hit uh, earlier this week that there was a, a BIOS vulnerability in Lenovo's uh, UEFI BIOS, and it says uh, this code exploits a zero-day privileged escalation vulnerability uh, or backdoor in the system SMM runtime RT UEFI driver. Uh, of the Lenovo firmware. The vulnerability is present in all of the ThinkPad series laptops that have UEFI. The oldest one that they've checked is the X220, which I have two of. Uh, and the newest one they checked was the T5 or T450, which is the 14-inch of the Broadwell. Uh, but I imagine your uh, Skylake has it as well. Oh, really? Uh, they say the latest firmware version available at the time for the T450 was still vulnerable. Uh, but 
you know, I don't think anybody knew about this vulnerability ahead of time, so it's probably in your uh, your X two sixty as well. Mm-hmm. It says uh, running of arbitrary system management mode code allows attackers to disable flash write protection and infect the platform firmware, so they could actually infect the UEFI firmware uh, to be able to reinfect your machine even if you erase the OS or whatever. Um, and also, they can disable secure boot so that they can cause you to boot a, an infected kernel or rootkit and things like that. Uh, they can bypass virtual secure mode, which is the credential guard and all that stuff mm-hmm. uh, that Windows 10 Enterprise can do and basically anything they want, right? At that point, they basically own the machine. Now, is this, is this vulnerability, is, this, is the attack vector through Windows itself, or is it, or is, I, I know that the target is eventually uh, the UEFI, but is, it, is, it, yeah, is um, it accessing that through Windows? If I, am I safe because I have Linux installed, or not so much? Uh, well, the, the code, because it's in the UEFI, I think you can run it from anywhere. I'm not sure if you have, to actually do the infection, if you have to be running in the UEFI mode, right. or if uh, it's just a matter of... Um, you could do it from any operating system where you can execute the code. Well, but I think it's that was it's my actually, question because how you do you to, how do you uh, actually get the code to run on the computer? It, uh, so this example one here is actually a .efi file that you have put on the efi partition. Mm. So uh, that's mounted on Linux as well. So a Linux machine would be vulnerable as well. How uh, would you how would you get the code to run to write the file to the efi partition to begin with? Well, that you'd have to exploit Linux somehow or something, I suppose. Mm. Uh, so you know, this is this is just the first version of the the exploit to actually take over the system. You would use some other exploit to actually, uh, you know, um, uh, get your code on the machine to be able to take right. over somebody's machine. Right. Okay. So so the fact that it's that it's less than two percent of the desktop market share is probably in my favor, and the fact that. Um, um, nope. Maybe a little bit, but not that much. Uh, you know, we we saw the one where. Uh, Deleting the wrong directory could break the EFI on a bunch from Linux as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in the end, on EFI, it's a FAT32 partition that every operating system can access. Right. So, you know, uh, there's that. Uh, it says the um, it looks like the vulnerable code, the system SSM uh, runtime RT UEFI driver, was actually just copy and pasted by Lenovo from the Intel reference code for their 8 series chipsets. Uh, and so Lenovo says they're engaging uh, all of the uh, independent BIOS vendors as well as Intel to identify or rule out any of the additional instances of the vulnerabilities presence in the BIOSes provided by Intel and other uh, BIOS vendors, as well as the original purpose of the vulnerable code. The other interesting thing is that Lenovo apparently doesn't even know what this function that they copy-pasted from Intel actually does, why it was there in the first place. Uh, you know, uh, so Lenovo's uh, released an official advisory about it on their website, which I have a link to in the show notes here. Uh, but after uh, a couple of days, uh, the original article was updated to note that it turns out pretty much everybody just copy and paste from the Intel SDK, which isn't uh, open and publicly available. Uh, they make it available only to the computer vendors, but they also do make an open source version, which happens to have this exact function copy and pasted as well. Um, but they found that the vulnerable code is uh, in use on HP Pavilion laptops, uh, a bunch of gigabyte motherboards they tested, including Z68, Z77, Z87, and Z97 uh, chipsets. Serves those people Uh, right. Fujitsu's uh, Dell uh, Latitude laptops. Uh, Probably almost every UEFI BIOS is a slightly modified copy-pasted version of the Intel SDK from their old 8-series chips. Uh, and so that's the other problem with this EFI code is that 
when Lenovo releases the X260, they didn't start fresh from a new version of Intel's SDK that right. maybe has been updated. Right. They just kept using the same one from their X220. Yeah. Although, to be fair, can you blame them? Yes and no. Uh, you know, it's, it's a thing we talked about last week uh, with the Symantec vulnerability. When you base your stuff on open source code, part of your job is to watch for vulnerabilities in that and update your, your copy of it, right? Like uh, it turned out Symantec uh, in their virus scanner had been using uh, open source library for looking in RAR files uh, that they hadn't updated in seven years where a bunch of vulnerabilities had been found and fixed, but they didn't bother pulling in the fixes because they just hadn't looked in the last seven years. Uh-huh. And I think we're basically running into the same problem with these EFI BIOSes. Interesting. I it it is. Uh, I I guess part of me is a little concerned because isn't this what the whole secure boot thing was supposed to protect from the beginning? From the get, isn't this the whole reason we have? I mean, well, uh, except for currently the UEFI code base is bigger than the Linux kernel, and all it does is load the Linux kernel, <laughs> right? Or you know. Hopefully, whatever operating system you happen to want to run. But so, side rant is the is the uh, is the UEFI is that is UEFI what's responsible for making the my beloved BIOS all graphically? Uh, no, there are still the same the same old not graphicy BIOSes for EFI, but it made it easier to standardize like being able to use USB devices in that BIOS so mm -hmm. that you could use a mouse. Uh, but no, it's mostly the vendors that decided they wanted to do the graphic key BIOSes because, you know, I have UFI super micro machines that have the same old AMI BIOS where I can tap through and I do everything with my eyes closed. Sure. I, I was just wondering if that contributed <laughs> yeah. to that to that large code base. Well, anyway, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. And, I'm, you know, it, it seems like it was found on Lenovo, but it seems like that problem... Yeah, you know, extends far it, beyond that, and so I, I don't know. This is, is I you don't say think this is it, Lenovo's fault. Uh, no, it's definitely not Lenovo's fault. Uh, the code is originally originally from Intel, although maybe it's Lenovo's fault for copying, pasting, and not updating. Uh, yeah. But so did HP, so did Gigabyte, so did Dell, so did Fujitsu. Well, and to be fair, I mean they got <laughs> so they got bit by a bug this time. But really, how often does that happen? How often does it happen right. where they, you know, for the most part, you should be able to say that no, we didn't have any problems in the last generation. Why reinvent well, the know, wheel? Just take it and it, pull it over. Uh, you know, if Intel made the code for this open source so that all the bugs could be found and fixed uh, instead of keeping it secret, then maybe it'd be great. <laughs> hmm. But, well, you know, it's all this secret sauce and it's, uh, turns out it was written badly. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean... Uh, yeah, I, I guess I, I guess it's one of those things. Is this one of the? Is this something that you would be worried about on the server too, with the with the with UEFI, you know, being yeah, so prolific uh, on the server? Again, you know, if somebody manages to get root access on your uh, your Linux server or your BSD server or whatever, and they can mount that EFI partition and throw that ThinkPad thing in there, uh, then when the machine boots, it runs the ThinkPad exploit. Sure. Yeah, that makes uh, perfect sense. And, and then they can do whatever they want on your machine. Mm-hmm. I wonder, so, you know, I guess, well, this seems like a great place to stop and talk about IX Systems. If you're mm -hmm. looking for a custom server, uh, head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And the, the great thing about these Intel IX servers, I've had a couple of experiences with IX, all 100% positive. Mm -hmm. But this is a company that really digs deep down into their customer. It's not just that they offer 
world-class operating systems like Linux and of course BSD, but mm-hmm. they also have they're also they're I, I feel like I'm talking to a human being that's uh, that is uh, emotionally and professionally invested in my task succeeding. Now, do you have mm-hmm. any of these pizza box servers? That is, uh, uh, I don't know if that's a technical name for them, but that's what I call them. <laughs> yeah, the regular one use. Yeah, uh, we have uh, six or so of them. Okay. Uh, four of them we had uh, specially built with a very specific Intel processor where the E3 server Xeon uh, has the graphics card like an i7 mm-hmm. uh, so that we could do video transcoding on them. Uh, but I also have a short depth one, so it's actually not as long as yes. that. Yes. Uh, that I use for a router at my house because I just wanted something small that wasn't too noisy mm-hmm. uh, that I can put in the rack at my house uh, to be my router. And it's got four onboard gigabit NICs and it's super fast. It has IPMI so I can manage it from another room without having to go into the server room and try to find a monitor to hook up to it. Right. Uh, and all that stuff. The thing, the thing I like about those pizza box servers is, like you said, they're short depth, and so you can actually put them in a two post rack, and uh, and that's what I have down in my basement. Uh, I've that's just got what a, I had at first as well. Yeah, it's just it's a telco rack, and the nice thing is, it's it it my uh, my IT room is uh, my wife has put laundry machines in our IT room. I don't know why, but she decided to put our laundry machines in our IT room. Uh, something about it was designed as a laundry room, but uh, the uh, but the the great thing about those that that two post telco rack is one they're Fairly inexpensive. Two, you don't have to buy rail kits for anything. And three, it's the same rack. I, I just I threw my switch in there for a couple hundred bucks. I have a forty-two U rack in my basement, and it's super nice. Mm-hmm. And with those pizza box servers from my systems, it's a great way yeah. to, uh, to to get a to get a virtualization server, or in your case, a router, uh, maybe a small web server, a backup server for the office. IXSystems.com/slash/techsnap. Yeah, they also have. Uh, if you don't want to have a rack at your house, the FreeNAS Mini is a little. Uh, yeah. Like short depth tower case. Uh, they yeah. have the FreeNAS Mini, which is four bays, and the FreeNAS Mini XL, which is eight. Uh, it's a real server Xeon processor. Uh, it can actually saturate its dual gigabit uh, Ethernet ports, although the XL actually has the option of getting a 10 gigabit Ethernet port if you really need it. Um, and you're getting ZFS, so you're getting uh, all the best uh, redundancy and speed. And it basically blows something like a Synology or any other NAS you would buy at a store completely uh, out of the water. You know, I've got a friend that is currently in the process of looking for a um, for a small file server for his house. He keeps. A, I, I built him one. I built him like a, a, a four terabyte, and he outgrew that. And so we expanded it to like a twelve terabyte. And now he's outgrown that. <laughs> so he just he keeps looking and he, he's like, well, maybe if I bought like a professional one and, and then I could, uh, yeah, we, we're watching some of those new uh, those new larger drives that are coming out. And I was like, yeah, it might be a thought, but this would be a really great turnkey solution for somebody that wants the yeah. use of a file server, but doesn't want to actually have to go through the trouble of building it themselves. Right. And because it's the Atom based Xeon, uh, it only pulls like uh, the, the FreeNAS Mini XL, the bigger one, even I think only pulls like 35 watts at idle. Mm-hmm. And at max, it's 50 watts. Yeah, I, I um, hear so those atoms like, are <laughs> incredibly impressive with power consumption. Yeah. And and it's like you said, if you get the 8-bay one and only put four or so many hard drives in it, and then you're when you're out of space, because it's ZFS, you just stick two more drives in, and now you have that much more space. And mm-hmm. once you've filled up all eight drives, what you do is replace the smallest drives one at a time with bigger ones, and you keep getting more space until you've you know swapped out all your old one terabyte drives with the new eight terabyte drives, and now you have infinite space, basically. Uh, at, depending on the speed of your growth, obviously, but it, in the end, usually you're not going to outgrow the pace that hard drives are getting bigger. Right. And so just replacing one drive every so many you know, six months or once a year or whatever, 
uh, means that even just with your Christmas budget, you can keep growing your NAS and never have to worry about trying to move everything from small hard drives to big hard drives because exactly. ZFS takes care of it all. Exactly. So for those that are, are have not joined the BSD or the Linux world and they're still stuck in Windows, you finally have some protection. <laughs> uh, you can go to uh, fully encrypt your Windows system. Tell me about this, Alan. Yeah, so this is actually uh, a vulnerability that allows you to go from having nothing to being system, which is the highest privilege level in Windows. Uh, like, it's actually higher than administrator. It's things that normally only Windows itself can do, um, even when the disk is fully encrypted. Uh, so in a fully encrypted disk, the whole point is that uh, if, you can't, if you don't log into the machine, you can't access any of the files. The mm -hmm. drive's encrypted, nothing's supposed to happen. Uh, so it says here, uh, whether you want to protect the operating system components or your personal files, a full disk encryption solution allows you to keep track of the confidentiality, uh, confidentiality and integrity of your files. So uh, the other thing about encryption, not only is it making sure that nobody can read your files, it also makes sure nobody can change your files. Right. If they do change them, you'll detect it because the, the hash will be different. Uh, whereas if you don't have that, then I could just replace an important like notepad.exe on your computer with a virus and then you would run it and then I would be able to compromise your encrypted disk. Mm -hmm. But it stops that as well. Um, so one of the most commonly used uh, full disk encryption solutions is Microsoft's BitLocker, which due to its integration with the trusted platform module, which is a little chip on your motherboard that can, uh, it's basically tamper-proof. You can store your keys in it and even if someone like pries it out of your motherboard, they can't read it. Uh, and get your key back. Uh, but with this integration with Active Directory, it makes it both user-friendly and easy to manage in a corporate environment. Um, when the system is protected with a full disk encryption solution, without the pre-boot password or login to the lock screen, uh, it makes sure attackers, even with physical access to your laptop, aren't able to gain access to your files or your system. Right. The whole point of this is if they steal your laptop that's full disk encrypted, they can't get your files. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, well, that's so, the, at least that's the promise that's the of encryption. Idea. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In this post, we'll explain how an attacker with physical access to an Active Directory integrated system, uh, like your laptop, via mm -hmm. stealing it, mm -hmm. is able to bypass the login or lock screen, obtain a clear text version of the user's password, and elevate this privilege uh, to be the local administrator or even system. Uh, this can be accomplished via two security vulnerabilities, which affect all versions of Windows from Vista through 10, and uh, abused using standard security features, not requiring you to actually install extra software. Uh, so that's the other big thing, is that you don't have to do any custom software. You can do this with all stuff that's built into Windows currently. I said, so these two vulnerabilities, uh, discovered with the help of uh, the author's colleagues, uh, were reported to Microsoft. Uh, however, at, originally at the time of this post, only one of the vulnerabilities had been patched. Uh, that was MS-16.014. Uh, uh, and the second one hadn't been. And so this original blog post only covers the first one. Uh, because the second one, they weren't going to give out the details until Microsoft had released a patch. Although, at this point, they've already done that post as well. Uh, so this is uh, the other one, which allows you to escalate that privilege uh, from being just you know, a regular user on the laptop to being the local administrator or even system is still under investigation by Microsoft. And there's a link to Microsoft's acknowledgement. But then, uh, since that time, we've uh, the patch has come out. And mm -hmm. it turns out it's actually MS-16-072. Uh, which people who were watching TechSnap a couple of weeks ago will remember from episode 272. So that was two weeks ago. That's the one that broke group policies on everything. <laughs> that sounds so fun. That it, it, it's interesting that we actually covered the story of the Microsoft update breaking everything. Mm -hmm. 
And then two weeks later, we're actually covering the story of this is the vulnerability that that update was supposed to help save you from. Yeah. And it turns out it's really bad. So it's a good thing Microsoft was trying to patch it. Yeah, you, you are inspiring more and more confidence in Windows yes. as you, uh, as you well, talk. Yeah, as, as you'll see from the timeline in the story here, it took Microsoft eight months to come up with this patch. And when they finally released it, it broke a whole bunch of people's Active Directory setups. Well, that's <laughs> not important. Had to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, step one to breaking the machine into the machine here is hibernation, your friendly neighborhood password dumper. Uh, so it says, speaking for myself and probably a lot of other users, shutting down a laptop has become a thing of the past. In order to be able to rapidly start using your system when traveling from one place to another, you put it in. You put it into sleep mode or hibernation mode, essentially putting all the processes on hold so they can easily resume when needed. This is, uh, although in order to resume your uh, session or from sleep or hibernation, you'll need to enter the password on the lock screen. Or at least that's the, uh, the goal is that you'll be able to do that, right? Uh, the system has your password stored somewhere in memory in order to resume the different processes. But if it was in memory and you hibernated, that means you wrote it to disk. Uh, it says, uh, we want the system to dump the contents of the memory on disk so that we can recover it later. Hibernation is, is there to the rescue, and you'll be able to force the system into hibernation in creating that hyper file, that sys file. Mm -hmm. It says, uh, luckily, the default configuration on a laptop running Windows uh, depicts it going into hibernation if the battery hits uh, critically low, which is about 5% of the battery. Mm -hmm. So if your battery gets really low, it goes into that automatically. So if you steal someone's laptop, even though you can't log in to do that, mm -hmm. you can just leave it running until the battery runs low, and then it'll hibernate. Right. Uh, and this ensures well, you don't lose your unsaved documents or whatever. But there is that is that is something that that uh, that users can shut off, right? Yes. Although usually that's what you want. If your battery is running critically low, it's like save everything and shut off, and uh, you know it'll right turn back disk, on when I plug yeah. it in. Right. 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 The RAM to disk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so then step two is bypassing the login or lock screen. Mm -hmm. So uh, if a computer is a member of an Active Directory domain and the user has logged into this machine previously, their password will be cached locally by Windows. So if they're ever disconnected from the network, they can still log in. So all an attacker needs to do is create their own rogue Active Directory server on the network. So mm -hmm. basically you connect the laptop only to your little uh, setup network where you have a, a fake Active Directory server that's pretending to be the, the user's regular real Active Directory server. Mm -hmm. um, and on that, you have not the right password because you don't u know the user's password. But you have a password set, but you have it set that it's expired. Well, okay, so uh, forces right? them to change so it. As soon sure. as the user types in uh, a password, uh, whether it's right or not, uh, it will then prompt them, hey, it's time to change your password. Uh, once the password uh, change procedure is completed, the cache credentials on the machine are updated with the new password that I, the attacker, just set when I change your password. Uh, when Windows actually tries to change the password on the domain controller, it'll fail because it wasn't, they, they weren't actually logged in properly. Uh, this is, uh, because the system is not able to establish a secure connection, the password is not updated on the Kerberos server, uh, but still allows an attacker to log in uh, when the system is not uh, part of the active network connection. Right? When, you, when there's no network connection, it'll still let you log in with that password you just typed in. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so since the attacker set the new password uh, on the domain controller, as far as Windows is concerned, but not really, the domain controller didn't get the message, mm -hmm. uh, the attacker now knows the password that Windows expects to log in. 
Right. And uh, when they attempt to log in, it tries to use the network, notices it's not there, and lets you log in with that wrong password. Uh, and then it says, although the authentication has been bypassed, we still only have limited privileges on the victim's account, right? We're just the regular user. We don't have right. any permissions. Uh, taking into consideration that the user isn't doesn't happen to be local administrator on their own laptop, which sometimes they are, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where the next step comes in, uh, where we explain how to obtain full local uh, administrative privileges just by using the uh, Windows functions that are built into the system. So that's where the first article ends, and we start the second one. Okay. Uh, so step three is uh, privilege escalation to the system account. Uh, we know that the trust between the client and the domain controller is not always properly validated. Uh, we have a working after directory setup where we have a working rogue uh, domain controller. The question is, there, uh, what other Windows functionality that's failing to properly validate the trust? So how about group policies? <laughs> uh, it works on all supported version of Windows. Uh, it doesn't need any additional software. And there are no special configuration requirements to use it. It's basically built into all versions of Windows. So there are two types of group policies. There's computer configuration policies and user configuration policies. Uh, computer configuration policies are applied bef- when the computer starts before you actually log in. The machine account is used to authenticate to the domain controller in order to retrieve the policies. And finally, all the policies are executed with the system pr- privilege. Uh, since we don't know the machine account password, they're randomly generated when the machine joins the domain. So they're you know, impossible to guess. At least they're supposed to be. Right. Uh, we can't use computer configuration policies for this. But user configuration policies are applied uh, as a user logs in. Mm-hmm. So after they type in the password, after it's authenticated, it runs the group policy before they actually start the desktop. It's because usually half the point of those group policies is modifying the desktop. Right. Like making their my documents link go somewhere else, uh, yep. removing items from the start menu, all that kind yep. of stuff. Uh, and so those are executed as either the logged in user or system, depending on some settings. Uh, so now, this last type of policy, the user policy, is interesting because we know the password of the user and we, because we reset it to whatever we wanted. Uh, so now let's create a scheduled task group policy object, so basically a cron tab, but Windows version, mm-hmm. uh, that will execute netcat uh, as the system user. And uh, finally, we'll uh, list, uh, connect to the listening netcat as the regular user. So basically, we're doing a reverse shell, but the Windows style. Right. Uh, and so by just running Netcat to this port that we've opened by this task that runs every five minutes in the background, uh, we now have a shell where we can run any command we want as higher than administrator privileges. So uh, they set that up and they tried it out. And on Windows 7, it just worked immediately. And they completely owned the system. Game over. Uh, it says, Windows 7 fails to validate if the uh, domain controller from uh, where the group policies are being applied is indeed an actual trusted domain controller. Mm-hmm. It, it assumes that the user credentials are sufficient to acknowledge the trust relationship. Um, in this attack, all encrypted traffic remains intact and doesn't require any modification whatsoever. Mm-hmm. However, when they tried it on Windows 10, it didn't work right away. Turns out that on Windows 10, it does a, an LDAP lookup for the SID of the user and when that fails, it just stops there and never goes further. So, is that actually uh, a security feature, or is that just I think it a limitation be, of you know you know your yeah? It's kind of a happenstance. Right, right, right. Yeah, it doesn't sound like that's there by design. It sounds like they just no. got lucky. Yeah, it's basically some new thing they added does a search <coughs> for the user, and when it doesn't find it, it stops the process there, and it just never gets to the vulnerable code. Uh, and so, on the rogue 
domain controller you've created, you need to modify the user objects you created for that user to have the exact same SID or SID mm -hmm. as the real domain controller has it for that user. Because the machine looks up its SID and says, hey, because it, it doesn't do it by username because especially in a big domain, you might have people with the same username but that are in separate parts of the forest right. on different domain controllers and so on. And so the SID's supposed to be globally unique. Um, luckily, there's this... Uh, application called uh, Mimikatz mm -hmm. that's a, basically a generic tool for Windows to do all kinds of security related stuff. You can like extract the password hashes, you can change things and well recently it got a module that allows you to edit the SID of a user. So they used Mimikatz on the rogue domain controller to make the SID actually match, which normally is really hard to do, right? Windows doesn't let you just edit that. Uh, they're supposed to be globally unique and auto-generated. Uh, but Mimikatz has a way to modify it in the domain controller and make that SID be what you want it to be. And once they did that, it just worked. <laughs> and so they owned Windows 10 machines as well. So Windows 10 can be compromised. It just takes a little bit more effort. They, they, they had to do a little bit of extra stuff on their rogue domain controller to make it work. Gotcha. And it probably wasn't, like you said, it probably wasn't extra protection Microsoft added so much as there just happened to be this other thing that Microsoft started looking for. And when they didn't find it, they canceled the whole process. Uh, and it happened to to stop that check happened to be before the vulnerability instead of after. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so. That. Yeah, so Microsoft has patched both of these in the the last patch Tuesday, so everybody's all patched up and secure now. Or are for now. <laughs> so uh, at the end of that article, the author posts that he has come up with a bypass for the MS sixteen zero fourteen patch, uh, the one that stopped you from being able to fake out the login. Uh, at the beginning, by with the, you know, resetting their password, uh, is is yes, you've read that right. There is still a way to bypass the Windows login screen and bypass authentication and log into a fully encrypted Windows machine. And it says more details will be released soon once Microsoft has a patch for it. That's uh, so we'll, we'll, Yeah, we'll keep an eye on this guy's blog and learn how uh, he got all around it. Uh, in a couple of weeks, when uh, probably after next Patch Tuesday, when Microsoft fixes it, although last time it took them eight months to come up with a patch, but that was for the the second half, not the first half. So, uh, we'll we'll have to see what happens. Well, I'll tell you, patching systems and trying to keep up to date with all that stuff, especially back you know a couple of years ago when I had to go on site to do all that stuff, was is is one of the things that would have eventually run me out of the IT business. I think that. Driving from one place to another, I used to make weekly rounds. I'd go to the, the various big sites, and we would just stop and and do patches and security updates, and and do a couple of reviews. And inevitably, somebody would grab you and tell you had to do this, that, or the other. And uh, and that was when IPv4 was even more uh, was even less stress than it is now. Try and get a public address on every server now; it's it's ridiculous. So I am super thankful for things like DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean mm -hmm. is a VPS on demand. You can spin up a Linux rig. Anytime by heading over to uh, digitalocean.com and you can use the promo code SNAPOcean to mm -hmm. get $10 off your first Linux rig. Or in my case, I actually, what I've been doing is using two of the servers. I can get almost everything I need to get done on those $5 droplets. So being able to 
uh, having that $10 credit actually gets me two servers. And with their networking tab, uh, I'm able to administrate all of the DNS A records. And so when I spin up a DigitalOcean droplet, uh, it simply maps to a service domain that we're that we are using. And then mm-hmm. I have access to the council through their little Java applet, which is absolutely awesome. And Alan, have you played with their block storage, or have you? I haven't you... tried the block storage yet. Oh, it's amazing. It it is. Uh, it, that's my impression of Chris. Oh. That's when he's really happy about something. The uh, block storage it, that was that was the number well the number two thing that people wanted on DigitalOcean was block storage. I think number one is the ability to upload custom ISOs. Yeah. I'm not sure where they are with that, but the uh, I, and just for fun, we were doing a review a couple weeks ago on virtualization, and I was like, I wonder if I could virtualize a virtualized host, mm-hmm. and so I virtualized a eighty dollar a month droplet, and it was amazing. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. So you can you can actually virtualize your virtualized. It's very inception like. Uh, it's called nested virtualization. Yeah. Uh, oh, so that's a, this is a, this is a, so this is a thing. This isn't just something that that no yeah, did stupidly. Yeah. So newer newer versions. Uh, so when CPUs got hardware virtualization support, uh, like you could always run a VM in a VM. Usually the program tried to stop you, but you know QMU didn't. So you could run like vmware and then run qmu and yet and then run qmu inside qmu or something and keep doing it and do terrible things um but when hardware virtualization came out it became a bit less of a thing because you only got the speed gain of the 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 outermost vm Mm. but then they came up with this feature called uh, ept pass-through so ept is extended page tables it's basically how you can have tell the actual processor that this ram is actually in the vm and treat it differently Mm-hmm. Uh, and it allows the processor to do all the work for you. Uh, and so with EPT pass-through, uh, you can actually have a VM inside a VM, and it gets full speed with the hardware acceleration. Interesting. I was yeah. not aware of that. Uh, not all virtualization engines support that. Okay. Uh, originally, uh, VMware Fusion on Mac was the only one that had it for a long time. <laughs> uh, but that came down to because the Macs all had the you know very restricted set of hardware that would always have the feature. Uh, sure. But I know that's how some of the original development of um, uh, Beehive, the BSD virtualizer, was done because it could be done on top of uh, inside a VM. So you, you know, oh, every time sure. you crash, you didn't take out your whole work environment, right? Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I suppose that is pretty helpful for developers. So I know anytime I download an ISO or anything, uh, I always check the MD5 hash. Uh, I mean, you mean the SHA-512, right? Yeah, right. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but MD5 making the news this week, too. Yeah. Uh, so this is a little bit... Uh, okay. So the story actually goes back to even like uh, 2014. Uh, but it says... Uh, so on this post from 2014, it says, A while ago, a lot of people visited my site, about 90,000, uh, for a post he did about how easy it is to make two images that have the exact same MD5 hash uh, by using the chosen prefix collision. So he used uh, this uh, script Mark Stevens wrote called the Hash Clash and ran it on Amazon's AWS, or you could do it on DigitalOcean's droplets, because, again, you rent those by the hour. So if you only run it for a couple hours, it only co- costs like a couple of cents, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said that the estimated cost of uh, running it until you find a collision was about 65 cents. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Do you think a lot of this is just beca- because of how cheap VPS has VPS power has become? A little bit, you know. Before, is if you wanted to do this, you would have to buy all those computers and run them, right. or at least rent them for a whole month. Right. Whereas now, it's like, well, I need, uh, well, let me get like twenty computers that are really fast mm-hmm. and run this code on all of them, 
And after three hours, I find the answer and I can turn them all off. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're only billed yeah. for those three hours. Yeah. If you're only paying one cent an hour each, that's 20 cents an hour times three. That's only 60 cents. Yeah. Yeah. You could, like, you could do it many, many times buy, more before yeah. that actually becomes financially infeasible. Right. And, uh, you know, were you going to buy 20, $10,000 computers to do it on at home? Probably not. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, it makes it a lot easier to do this stuff. So, so it says, uh, given the level of interest, I expected to see a lot of cool MD5 collisions popping up all over the place. Uh, possibly it was enough for most people to know that how easily it could be done, and so people just weren't doing it. So his original 2014 blog post showed how to create two PHP scripts that have the same MD5 hash by just having a comment section in the middle there where you could fuzz the results until both of them had the same hash. Um, and then in a 2015, early 2015 uh, blog post, he showed how to do it with two JPEGs. The interesting thing with JPEGs, obviously, is you you can't just change the middle of it because you'll change the picture. Uh, but if you look on the website there in the link, you can actually see he's got these two JPEGs that are completely not the same thing but have exactly the same hash. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they haven't really got malicious with it yet. Other than, well, you know, if that was a, a JPEG of... Um, a document that was signed or something, maybe you could change it. Uh, one of the other, the, one of the very initial classic examples of this was done with PDF files, uh, where there were two PDF two PDF files that were uh, orders from Caesar to one of his generals or whatever mm-hmm. uh, were signed, and mm-hmm. uh, basically you could take the the real order that was signed with the real signature mm-hmm. and then change the order to say do something else, and then in like a a PDF version of a comment of its source code. Mm-hmm. Stick a bunch of gobbledygook until you get the same MD5 hash, and now that you have this signed document and the MD5 hash is correct, mm-hmm. and it's got Caesar's signature, and it tells the army to retreat instead of attack, or something like that. You know, <laughs> that's a, that's an excellent that's analogy. Good. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, for the JPEG version, he actually provides the instructions and an AWS image all set up to do it, so you can even go and do it if you want. Um, but then there was a later post where he did the same thing with an executable. Uh, so with this version, he wrote this little C program, and it does a, ch- a comparison to see, you know, is this value 1? And if it is, it, it draws an angel. And if it's not, it draws the devil, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the find up at the top where it's just got a bunch of the letter A repeated endlessly. Uh, and then uh, there's a script that goes through there and keeps uh, adjusting those A's to different characters until the MD5 matches. Uh, but it's been changed so that that number won't equal one but will equal zero right and then you just keep frobbing that string of randomness until you get a value that comes out to the same mb5 mm-hmm. so now you have two files angel.exe and devil.exe mm-hmm. that have exactly the same md5 checksum mm-hmm. so if you downloaded it and check the checksum you're like yep that's right it's not modified mm-hmm. and if you run one it prints out an angel and if you run the other one it prints out a devil right so it could easily be malware and not malware right uh, so that's where it ended off around the end of 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this week, uh, developer Casey Smith managed to make an angel.exe that's actually a copy of Mimikatz, that Windows hacking utility we talked about in the last story, mm-hmm. that can like, extract all the Windows passwords or whatever else, um, and call that angel.exe and make an identi- uh, a identically sized and hashed devil.exe that just prints out nothing to see here. So... You know, another example of this, you could take, say, regedit.exe, 
right, which is part of Windows and is on Windows's whitelist of, you know, if you enable whitelisting in Windows, you can actually say only binaries with these hashes are allowed to run mm -hmm. so that virus just won't run. Only programs you've, you know, manually approved are allowed to run on your computer. Mm -hmm. But if regedit is approved and I take a copy of regedit and um, I modify it until I get my binary that's actually a virus but has the same MD5 hash, then... I can throw that on your computer and it'll run even though the whitelisting is supposed to stop any untrusted binary from running. Right. And so then uh, you, you, know, you have this whitelisting so you know that no viruses can ever run on our machines because uh, we only allow binaries we've manually approved to run. But I just made one that has the same hash and now Windows can't tell the difference. Right. So you've, you've attacked, and, yeah. You've yeah, attacked so, this protection, yeah. Yeah, so I can actually run it. Uh, I don't know if Windows whitelisting still uses MD5, but it did uh, before. I don't know if it still does. Although uh, Windows is mostly mo uh, switched away from that type of whitelisting to instead of having uh, signing, where you actually like cryptographically sign the exe file, uh, because it makes it easier to check the trust than just manually maintaining this giant list of hashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so I thought that was an interesting story, uh, and the tools to do it are also available. Uh, in the GitHub repo, I have a link here. Oh, that's interesting. Well, thanks a lot for for covering that. I think that uh, I think it, it's kind of fun, you know. To uh, you know, I I live, eat, and breathe in the Linux world, so it's kind of fun to jump over here and see what uh, what the measly Windows users have to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> to put it nicely, hey, I tell you what. Uh, one thing that we all have in common: Windows, Linux, or BSD doesn't really matter. Your phone doesn't care. Over at uh, ting.com or techsnap.ting.com, excuse me. Yep. You can get $25 off. If you're looking for a phone service, man, this is the way to go. I have my Ting S6 here that I brought with me from Grand Friday. I have my sticker on the back. <laughs> That's kind of, I guess it's, uh, it's probably a little narcissistic, but kind of like that sticker, and it opens up conversations about Linux. The uh, the thing that I like about Ting is it lets you cater to the user that you are. So you only pay for what you use. There are no BS mobile service provider. My average Ting bill is 20 four dollars a month and that's for me and my wife and a hotspot that i have on my account why is that well turns out i run a network company and so basically everywhere i go i have access to the internet i have we have a special wi-fi system that is set up uh, or special ssid that's set up on every network that we administrate that gives us administrative access to the network itself so you know bypasses the captive portal and the speed restrictions and all that crap well if i put my phone on there and I have all my phone calls going through SIP, and I have all my emails and my and my any sort of instant message coming through Telegram. That means that basically everything is going over Wi-Fi, and Ting doesn't charge me for that. I don't pay for minutes, and I don't pay for messages because I don't use those. But if you did, you'd only pay for what you use. Now, Alan, you and I were talking about traveling to Japan. Yep. I took my Ting phone, Ooh. took my Ting SIM out, put it in my suitcase, bought a local uh, prepaid GSM on on uh, on. Um, Domoku, I think it was, Domoku, yep. uh, and, and put that SIM in my phone and used it all over Japan with a local number for the entire time I was there, had LTE service practically everywhere I went, pulled that SIM out, got back on the plane, flew back in into the United States, and for that week that I was gone, I didn't pay for any of my Ting service because I only paid for what I used, and because mm -hmm. Ting's, all of Ting's devices come factory unlocked, I wasn't locked to their network, I didn't have to go in and sign some oh, contract yes. to, to get the stupid thing unlocked, or even AT&T, which is one of the better carriers for unlocking devices, even them, if, you, if I go buy a cash device in their store, I pay cash for it, and I walk out of the store, they will not unlock it for you. 
they will give yeah, you a uh, URL and then you've got to enter the MEID and then you got to wait 24 hours and then generate some code and verifies who you are and verifies the it's 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 a huge nightmare. Ting comes r- unlocked right from the manufacturer. So check them out techsnap.ting.com 25 bucks off your first device or your first first month of service. And if you're like me, if you're or if you're a single person like me, get away for probably 10 bucks, probably get you 2 months. Yeah. Um you know, uh, in Japan, I know one of the other people that was at the conference with me was having this problem and trying to talk to their phone carrier. But because of the time difference, it was like there weren't uh, the hour. It was outside of hours all the time. And even and it's like, well, so I have this SIM card that I just paid for in Japan and it won't go in my phone because my phone is refusing it because the carrier locked it down because they're evil. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, and, tr- and trying to get that that those hours straight. I noticed that banks now have come up with a system where they have international uh, international number with international hours to try and cope mm, with that. Yep. But uh, I don't know that the cell phone uh, yeah companies are doing. Romy, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I kind of cheated for mine because I still needed my main number to work during mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. So I rented uh, basically a hotspot like you were talking about from Ting uh, in Japan and just Wi-Fi'd everything. Do you do your calls over SIP or are you using like Hangouts uh, Dialer or something? No, I, I would have had to pay my Canadian carrier's ridiculous, like, $2 a minute roaming fee to actually oh. take calls. Okay, so you're using to... your ordinary service, and then you're just you're just bringing local Wi-Fi with you so that you hope yeah. not to have to use it. Yeah, because I used I the local it. Wi-Fi with, uh, basically, what I wanted was Google Maps so I didn't get lost in Japan. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That was my only concern. So, uh, I'll tell you something. Here's a pro tip that I found. Um, you can actually, my phone died halfway through. We were out walking around. My phone died, and my buddy pulled, pulled, out, pulled out his phone. Wi-Fi is pretty hard to find, actually, outside of hotels. Um, but there's a couple of restaurants that have it, and you can go into a restaurant, connect to Wi-Fi, get the maps loaded, and Google Maps will continue to function as long as it has GPS connectivity. Usually, yeah. Uh, oh, we didn't have any problems. I should in, say. Uh, a couple of years ago, when I first went to Japan, uh, Google Maps had the feature where you could pre-download, like on the hotel Wi-Fi. But it was disabled in Japan because the company they bought the maps from wouldn't let them offer it to users. I think that's changed now. But uh, the first time I tried to rely on that, it blew up in my face. That's no good. Well, I'm glad that I heard that story after I got back and nothing bad happened. Hey, Alan, Uh, with all the news out of the way, uh, let's head over to the feedback segment. Before I do that, I understand that there is an upcoming show on JB that is uh, capturing more and more audience attention, BSD Now, which uh, should be out very shortly if it's not out already. Tell Uh, me a little bit about it. Normally be out by now, but because the episode was like two hours and 20 minutes, it's taking a little longer to edit and render. Uh, But we had uh, an interview with Michael Dexter. Uh, and we talked about literally everything in BSD, uh, Beehive, Disk CTL, um, VM, his uh, virtual machine management thing for Beehive, and on and on and on. Uh, so many great things, uh, plus all the news and uh, all the other stuff we talked about. It was great. Lots of feedback, too. That sounds awesome. Well, with that, Alan, let's head into the feedback segment. Thanks so much for submitting a story to the subreddit, sending in your emails, or heading over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, clicking on the contact link, and choosing TechSnap from the drop-down menu. Our first email comes in today from Pete, and Pete says, I'm in the process of allowing my own cloud server to be accessed from outside my home network. I've been following some online tutorials on how to do that. They're all okay, but they all, in one form or another, suggest that this is a really bad idea. They lean towards to rent a shared hosting server or VPS. To be honest, 
I don't see any advantage in having my own cloud server on a shared or hosting VPS, but what am I missing? Is that a bad idea to have my own cloud server exposed to the internet? Thanks for the answer, Pete. So there's kind of two different aspects to that. So exposing your own cloud server to the internet is kind of a bad idea, uh, but doing it from a VPS doesn't really help at all. The only advantage of doing it from a, a hosting server or a VPS instead of a machine at your house is that if someone does break into their own cloud, they can't then over the land get to your regular machines, right? Where they might be able to get access to even more data and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, if you're if you are going to expose your own cloud server to the internet, what you probably want to do is put it. Uh, you know, you're going to be using nginx or some web server, mm-hmm. and I would just put. Uh, HTTPS, even if it's a self-signed certificate, but or Let's Encrypt, get a Let's Encrypt certificate, uh, set it up with HTTPS, and do HTTP basic authentication. So you have to actually log in with a username and password before you can actually get to executing the own cloud code. So like I know uh, own cloud has its own login system, but even just one username and password that everybody shares or something that's HTTP basic before you even get to that. Mm-hmm. So if there ever is an exploit for own cloud, which happens from time to time, uh, nobody will be able to actually try it without first having to know that that outer username and password. Right. Yeah. It gives uh, an extra that, layer of security. Yeah. You know, I'm going to respond. Because it, you, you don't want to depend on own cloud for the, the login security mm-hmm. because if own cloud has the vulnerability, it's possible they can do it without needing to log in. I'll take a slightly different approach. Um, I think that OwnCloud, for the most part, is pretty useless if you don't have it accessible from the internet. Um, it seems like, I mean, there are some things. You could do some calendar syncing and stuff while you're in your house. And if you wanted to do a file server for your family members and wanted to move some stuff around, I guess I could kind of see it. But I think really where OwnCloud comes into a zone is I turn on my laptop, I install a client, and some, like, automatically, all of my stuff that was on my desktop just shows up on my, well, a specified folder anyway, shows up on my laptop. And that, it has to be open to the internet for that to happen. I guess the only advantage, I agree with you that I don't think there's a huge advantage in moving it to a VPS. The one exception, which is kind of what you touched on, is you don't really have to pay any attention to your home uh, security or setting up your your network. Or the other thing, the bigger problem, in my opinion, honestly, is you don't have to worry about getting a static IP or dealing with dynamic yes. DNS, that kind of nonsense. That- well, and the other big thing is, especially if you're going to try to access files on the road, mm-hmm. your home internet connection can upload at, what, like five megabits? A digital ocean droplet can upload at a thousand megabits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're going to get better bandwidth. But, but as far as, I don't... If you have a any consumer grade just a router with a firewall and you have NAT enabled and you're forwarding just the the own cloud port, I'd say your risk is fairly minimal. Remember, attackers it's basically restricted to a bug in own cloud, right? Uh, letting somebody do something. And keep in mind, attackers are lowest hanging fruit, right? So unless you are storing. NSA documents or something, you're not real high on their list. If you ha- if they happen to come across well, you the, and the they happen to find an exploit, yeah. it's going to be an automated one. They're going to uh, find an exploit for own cloud and then use Google to find or or Shodan or some search engine to find every own cloud server they can and try to exploit all of them. And so if you're doing the HTTP basic over HTTPS in front of that, then uh, they'll never even know that it's own cloud behind it. Yeah. So, I, but I mean, I, that attack vector is going to function rather than a VPS or your home internet. So, um, exactly. personally, if you're, especially if it's a if it's a cash flow thing, if you're hard up on cash, run it from your home. I don't see a, I don't yeah. see a real problem with it. it. Yeah, like I said at the beginning, the only uh, 
slightly more risk you have of running out of home is someone using it to island hop to get to your other computers on your network. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a fairly low risk and, you know, uh, you probably don't care that much. Yeah, and you know what? If you do care, here's my answer to that. If you do care about island hopping, then data that you really care about that you do, can't afford for it to get stolen, don't put it on the internet. Like, don't have it connected to your network. I've got, I have yeah. a cold shelf computer. Mm-hmm. Works great. Yep. All right. Uh, okay, check so the email. next uh, email comes in from John. He says, I have a little bit more of a relaxed question for this episode of TechSnap since it's hosted with Noah. Uh, Noah, how many FreeBSD servers or computers do you control or use? A lot, actually, a lot, uh, and I can say that in perfect honesty because we use a ton of free, uh, FreeNAS. Yep. Um, so basically, FreeNAS is my go-to uh, file server solution, and the reason for that is pretty brain dead simple. And that is that out of the thirty or forty of them we've put into production over time, zero times have I ever been called back to a site to do something with actually been called back to a site to do something. Now, there is one call I get rather frequently, actually, and that is, hey, our uh, our server crashed, and so uh, the power went out, and we thought the server crashed, so we went back into power back up, and we plugged a monitor in, and it's stuck in DOS. So if you could come in and take a look at that and boot it back into Windows, that'd be great. Um, I get that call twice a year, but uh, and then usually the answer to that is, have you tried accessing your files? Yeah, they seem to work. Okay, don't worry about it. What about DOS? Don't worry about it. It'd be all right. Um, but aside from that, uh, I just I don't have to screw with them. You, you put them in, and they work. And I've got a free NAS server at my house, and I've got a free NAS server at AltaSpeed. Um, and basically, any client that has any real data that they are going to store, we put in a free NAS server. Um, mm-hmm. actually, ZFS is awesome. Is ZFS is awesome. Now, actually administrating a, like a BSD server, server, zero. And that's right. not it's not a hit on BSD. But, no, but what it is is I, I don't like multiple distros. So every server I have is CentOS because I understand and know how to administrate CentOS, and I'd just rather have it consistent across all of them. And if I switched even one of them to BSD, I'd probably switch them all to BSD because I just don't... don't, More than I have a preference for Linux or BSD, because they're both good operating systems, I have a preference for keeping everything the same. Right, well, because if you're going to... Especially when you have a company and you might have to have someone else do something for you, you want to have one set of documentation. You don't want to have to have two documents for... You know, it's like, oh, if it's a mail server, do this. But if it's BSD, it's slightly different over here right. or whatever. And it's just easier to have as, as you know, homogeneous as you can. Exactly. Well, yep. uh, so what about routers? Do you have any PF sense? I don't. I have. So we deal almost. We use a, microticks mostly, don't yep, we? Yep. We use. Uh, we use uh, so I have. I Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Ubiquity in the, in the roundup. But the mm-hmm. um, it mostly of sticking to microtech mainly because it's a plug and play solution. And the nice thing is, is we had this policy back uh, when I uh, at a at a at a company I formerly worked for, and basically the policy was you could take the equipment out as long as when it needed to be back, you could bring it back. And so I have implemented the same policy because what I found is it is the only real way to learn how to do something is to play with it yourself. And so if Mm -hmm. I can give an employee and say, listen, you're going to learn how to set up a router at this business in three weeks. So here's a router. Go set it up at home and and, and tell me what you think. They call, yeah, you got it set up. It's working great. Great. Now blow away the config and do it again. What? Yeah, really. (laughs) And and do that two or three times and you're set. You'll never forget it. And and the thing is, it's cost me thirty or forty dollars to give these guys a router for their house, but the operating system is exactly the same as the thousand dollar one that we put inside of these large businesses. So mm-hmm. they get familiar with the UI, they get familiar with the command, and you find that they, it's it's kind of a trick, because what I'm doing is they are working for free to some degree. 
they uh, they start with uh, they take this router home and it's like oh I got this free router from work no actually you spent six or seven hours doing training uh, by figuring out how to get your Counter Strike server to work in your house now you've mm-hmm. learned NAT and you you got your own cloud server and so you learned firewall and uh, so I kind of trick them into <laughs> into yep. doing some work free it works out really well. Yeah, uh, and well, PFSense is great for that as well because you can do it in a VM because it's completely open source software. A, a VM uh, or a spare machine you have sitting around? Yep. Uh, but they also make some embedded ones now so that you can actually get one that's like, you know, this big, you know. Do so they have any, they the have any one, where can, can I buy a pre-made uh, 1U yep. uh, PFSense? It's uh, netgate.com. Has, uh, they have some like small like shelf type devices or the fancier 1U ones. Okay, so is this okay? So this is basically the appliance. All right, yeah. are all these uh, actual uh, uh, servers, or do they have some that are more uh, appliance-like? Like they have, they have. Uh, well, these are all appliances that will just run PFSense. Although it's an x86, so you can just throw whatever you want on it. But they right. actually have some that are like barely bigger than a Raspberry Pi that are like uh, embedded as well. You know, I might, I might take a second look at this because this is something I've been meaning to dig into. And we actually use PFSense for self, uh, Southeast Linux Fest. And it was, it was flawless. Uh, the internet, we had some issues with, uh, with Time Warner <laughs> dropping the <laughs> RAN connection, but I uh, can't really blame PFSense yep. for that. Nope. All right. So, um, Next question from Matt. Uh, Matt writes in and he says, hi, Chris and Alan, uh, longtime listener, first Call for help. I've run into some issues on my FreeNAS, which made me wonder about the messages I got. This boils down to me using some older, worn-down USB flash drives for the most part, but here is the thing I still struggle with. Scrub tells me, scan Scrub. I'm not going to read all this, but basically he follows the error message here. His one device is in a degraded state because it has too many errors, uh, because it's uh, found 60 different checksum errors. And in particular, one of the files that's gone is the... uh, FreeNAS 9.10 stable ISO file. He says, I copied this ISO to the root directory of the USB flash drive just as a test and ran a scrub afterwards. This is a single USB device with no parity or redundancy, so permanent errors have been detected. To me, says, uh, sorry to get let you know, but you can't fix this. So what that means just is that ZFS can't get that ISO file back for you. Parts of it are hosed. Uh, now, as long as that's the only file that's listed there, then everything else is still okay-ish. Um, the other lucky thing is, if, because that's a USB stick with the OS side of FreeNAS, you can just make a new one and plug it in. All your data on your uh, your actual storage pool mm-hmm. is completely safe, and your configuration's even there. So those USB sticks, even if it died completely and you weren't able to get it back, nothing's wrong. You can just get a fresh USB stick, throw a fresh copy of FreeNAS on it, plug it in, and it'll work. <laughs> No kidding. So the configs are not actually stored on that on that flash device. Uh, it's actually stored on a the copy of them is, but there's a backup copy on the storage pool so that you if the USB sticks die, you can just replace them and and So there must fine. be a process to tell FreeNAS this isn't an this isn't a new installation. This is an existing installation that died and I want you to I think restore so. the config. Okay. I'm not that familiar with it, but it, it you can do that. It will save you. Hmm. Um the other thing is, yeah, so you can reset that those uh, number of errors, the checksum and the uh, thing there, by doing zpool zero, or sorry, zpool clear and the pool name, and it resets all those counters to zero. Uh, and then, you know, so if you delete that file and do another scrub, maybe it'll be okay. Um, the other thing is you can do is if you have a second USB stick, you can uh, add it to that existing pool and mirror it, and that'll help, although... Uh, because it's the boot USB stick, there's a little bit of extra stuff that has to happen. So, uh, But yes, uh, all your data on your NAS is still safe uh, because it's only your boot pool that's messed up, not your uh, your main pool. Hmm. Very interesting. 
<laughs> Moral of the story, always have redundancy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, no kidding. But, uh, you know, uh, honestly, and this is uh, this is just, I have this thing about magic configs, which is like, we have, we the, the server is so perfectly tuned and configured that we can't reinstall the operating system because if we did, we would, we would, it would, it would lose our magic configs. I, I don't like that. I like. You've documented it wrong. Right, exactly. Not enough. Thank you. So I, I am, I am, I'm 100% magic config. So uh, against magic config. So if it were me, I'd just reinstall FreeNAS and reset the server up the way I want it set up and then just import the, the story. In fact, that's what I do if when when I move, well, I change boxes. I b- b- built a whole new box and uh, and just imported my storage pool because I just didn't. I'm, I'm exactly. not a magic config guy. Uh, you know, and it actually kind of uh, before the DOI, you kind of mentioned about you know people wanting to avoid updating and stuff. It's like if you've done it properly, say say you're the guy with the own cloud server and you're running it on DigitalOcean, and you know it's been long enough and you want to switch to a newer version of Ubuntu, you could upgrade in place. Or you could just make a new droplet at uh, DigitalOcean, set it up as the newest, you know, 1604 or whatever, reinstall on cloud, mm-hmm. copy over your working config file and all your files, and then try it. Make sure it yeah. works, everything's good, and then you blow away the old machine. You know, mm-hmm. you want to be able to pick up your bits of data and right. drop them on a new base that has all the updates done already mm-hmm. and... You know, if you can't do that because you have all these magic configs, that's because you're a bad sysadmin. Yep, yep. I, uh, I I am very much anti magic config, yep. and I I make fun of anyone that has magic configs. All right, well, that is the end of the feedback segments. So let's head into the roundup. That music means it's the roundup. The roundup is the place where we go over a couple of stories, rapid fire, fast paced, things that didn't quite make it into the show, but we think that you should be aware of them. Hey, by the way, you should also be aware that you can find the links to all these stories over jupiterbroadcasting.com. That's where the show notes are. Alan, what's the first roundup story we have? Is it mine or yours? Yes, yours. Mine. All right. uh, Yeah, you wanted to talk about these switches. The uh, Ubiquity Edge switch. Now, the thing is... I have uh, I for for a long time when I started in the networking field I started with Cisco gear then I moved to Microtech and HP switches and lately we've been using a lot of Ubiquity stuff so the Edge switch is a sixteen uh, a sixteen port ten gig switch uh, or they make it in an eight port one hundred and fifty watt uh, PoE model I believe super super uh, you know with Ubiquity uh, you can be guaranteed that it's going to be pretty price competitive. But uh, this yeah, is going to be something. Like looking at that top one, it's got uh, 16 ports. 10 of or 12 of them are SFP plus, so uh, the fiber optic modules mm-hmm. uh, that can do 10 gig, and four of them are RJ45, like copper uh, 10 gig. So that's really nice for the combination of having being able to have a little bit of both. Exactly. So it's definitely something I'm going to keep my eye on when it comes out. I'll probably pick one up and see what I think of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd like to know how much it is because I bought a similar. Layout uh, D-Link switch, and mm-hmm. I'm not very happy with it. I would guess it's four or five hundred bucks. That would be my guess. If I'm, yeah. I'm stabbing in the dark, but that would be right. my guess. Well, well, it's ten gigs, so it might be a bit more than that. But I'm, they're, they're usually pretty shocking. You know, Ruckus mm-hmm. access points are thousand dollars, and they have a competitive product for sixty nine bucks. Yep. So, cool. Second story is that's uh, mine. Uh, reverse engineering the default WPA two password on the UPC UB router. Uh, so this is an interesting one. It's uh, basically a GitHub repo, um, and they 
So there's this uh, UB router that has a default password, and they managed to reverse engineer how the software comes up with the password in the first place so that you can then get uh, use this to guess the password on any of these routers um, without having to brute force it. You just input the same inputs, run it through the algorithm, and you will get the password and be able to get on the people's Wi-Fi. That's awesome. It's just terrible programming, basically. <laughs> That's awesome. I like yeah. it. I should pick one up. All right. Next story is the ViewSonic. This is basically ViewSonic's answer to a thin client. What's interesting about it is they're basically uh, capitalizing on <clears throat> what appears to be the Raspberry Pi. ViewSonic's $89 Visa-compatible SCT25 thin client runs a Linux-based VTOS distro on a Raspberry Pi 3 and is optimized for Citrix HDX. ViewSonic has offered wow. several low-cost thin client in recent years, such as the $199 SCU25, a collaboration with Useful. However, the SCT25 breaks the new ground at an $89 price. Its secret is building the device around $35 with the $35 Raspberry Pi three board. I think that's pretty cool nice. to see them taking a, a serious company taking what is really a hobby board and turning it into a commercialized product. Yeah, like well basically all they're having to do is uh, run like free RDP and a VNC client and X eleven on Linux on this device and you basically plug it into your monitor and your network and it connects to the uh, a terminal server somewhere unless you use it without actually having to have a computer. You just have a monitor and a keyboard, basically. We're back to the old uh, terminals from from uh, the mainframe days. Dude, I, I mean, we can't really get into huge long rant about this, but I, I remember when I was so happy to buy a one gigabyte hard drive because I could keep all my data on on my, my hard drive, and I didn't have to use PC Anywhere, which is the software at the time that I could yep. plug in a modem cable and dial up back to my home machine or my office machine and, and, and pull files down it. And I remember... I was so proud of myself when I, I got my first computer that had two PCMCIA slots and I could have two modems and XP allowed me to to set them up so Big I could button. get a hundred yeah I could get 128 kilobits whatever whatever it was it was it, it was pathetic but it seemed like super fast at the time and I could download files faster and we went from that to now everyone wants to store their files back up in the cloud again it's ridiculous yeah. well uh, even for me you know I've my my computer that I'm sitting at here only has a, a pair of small mirrored SSDs and all the actual storage is over the network to my file server in the basement. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, yeah, so, it's nuts. Mm -hmm. All right. Next story. Yeah. The next story is from threat post, uh, which is from Kaspersky. And it says that once, uh, these, you know, high end attackers break into your network, uh, post intrusion, most of the tools they're using to get around your network are the same tools you would use. The regular everyday admin tools like, Nmap and port scanners and and just you know beyond exec or p exec I think is the sys utils one, uh, but it's the once they break into your machines they're basically using the same you know team viewer VNC client R admin whatever the tools that you would probably use every day to administer your network, mm -hmm. like even using like WinSCP to to exfiltrate files. Yeah, I don't use WinSCP. No, I don't. I, I like files a lot, but. <laughs> Yeah, well, WinSCB doesn't run real well on Ubuntu, so yeah, there's that. Uh, it does. Yeah, yes, yes, it does. It's cross-platform. I like it. All right. Uh, <laughs> now, this is funny. TP-Link forgot to renew one of their domains. So, on the bottom of all of their TP-Link devices, it's tplinklogin.net, and then you go to this website, and then it redirects you to the local IP address of the device, and then you can mm -hmm. log in and change all of 
you know, your settings and stuff. Now, I think this is getting blown a little bit out of proportion. The reality yes, is that so, the DNS is local. Yeah, so in this particular case, it's the the DNS server built or forwarder built into the modem mm -hmm. always makes that go to the local address. And so unless you change it, it can be changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but if, if you had changed it, then it wouldn't work anyway. <laughs> well, so, I think that's I the idea, right? It, it, isn't that I, the idea is that they own the domain so nobody can exploit that if if that DNS entry is removed? Right. Uh, so, yeah, you, you could fish people maybe and give get them to give you their. But, it, you know, as you can see, printed on the bottom of the router, the default username and password are admin and admin. So I don't there's much value in stealing those passwords. Right. Uh, but when I first heard this, I thought because it was being blown out of proportion, I thought it was something more like a cloud configuration thing where uh, I would log in like to a, an actual site on the real Internet and somehow configure my motor or the router. And Ooh. it would pull it down, and I'd say, "Oh, that'd be really bad." But well, yeah, actually, so to be fair about it, that would that would be right. your that would be your stupidity for buying a router that you configure on the cloud. Yeah, uh, but uh, so in the end, yeah, uh, not that big a deal. But you know, technically, uh, they're now breaking the internet by stealing traffic that's meant for that domain name on their local routers. Yeah, I mean, uh, they should so, they should take uh, that up with ICANN. Yeah, the other ones I saw that were like that, like the my Japanese wireless thing has one like that, except for it uses like an unqualified domain name of just like, you literally type HTTP colon slash slash router. And oh, yeah? Just, and that works, huh? It resolves? Yeah, because the DNS server from DHCP is the router itself, so it knows its own IP address. Huh. Interesting. I, I just, I didn't, I thought the browser would have a problem trying to resolve, because if the browser doesn't see a, a fully qualified domain name, doesn't, don't some of them try to append that into a Google search or something? Yeah. Uh, but usually only if it doesn't resolve. Cause normally oh, okay. Try to, because normally we'll think it's a Windows computer name on your LAN or whatever. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense, I guess. But yeah. Uh, so both ways are terrible and yeah, shame on them for not renewing their domain, you know. Uh, if you're any kind of system, and what you should have is your monitoring system, Nagios or whatever it happens to be, should start alerting 14 days before the expiry date of your domain and make sure that you keep it updated. Same for your SSL certificates. Don't be embarrassed by letting your SSL certificates expire. Hmm. Uh, the air conditioning uh, can teach us something about innovation and laziness, apparently. So it turns out we, we got air conditioning up to the point where it worked as good as we wanted, and we've not innovated on it at all. And... Uh, Maybe now we start to do that again as uh, energy prices keep going up and my air conditioner keeps running up my power bill. Uh, but it's some uh, interesting reading. If it's just basically a case study on on how sometimes we get a problem that's solved good enough that nobody feels like working on it anymore. Yeah, sounds good to me. You know, to be honest, if you're not sweating your balls off, you're not usually worried about making a better air conditioner. <laughs> that sounds good to me. So 10 million, 10 million Android phones were uh, were hacked. Turns out, um, they were infected by an all-powerful auto-routing uh, thing. Affected 10 million Android phones. The article says here, security experts have documented that a distributing spike in particularly uh, virulent family of Android malware, with more than 10 million headsets uh, infected and 286,000 of them in the U.S. Researchers say from a security firm, Checkpoint Software, said the malware installs more than 50,000 fraudulent apps each day and displays 20 million malicious advertisements and generates more than $300,000 per month in revenue. Now, my question is, how would you not notice this is happening almost instantaneously and reset your phone? How is that not well, a thing? Now, it, it, when you think of it, 2 million phones sounds like a lot, but you realize there's like 2 billion Android phones. Yeah. 
Uh, and the other thing is, if you looked at their numbers there, they're like only 200,000 of them are in the U.S. Uh, so I guess you'd be really confused to keep getting ads that aren't in a language you can read. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know uh, how some of that happens. All right. If, if, if you don't know that your phone is not supposed to throw ads at you constantly, I suppose you would. I, I just, I just feel like if it's installing that many apps a day, I would figure it out pretty quick, even if I well, wasn't. So that, that number is the number of new people installing the malware. Oh. Oh. Is, is, and the malware is just showing you ads because the people that run the botnet make $300,000 a month by showing these ads. Hmm. Interesting. Apparently, your smartwatch can steal your ATM pin. That's a yeah, thing. So it's uh, it's got the gyroscopic sensor or whatever to detect movements, and uh, <laughs> so it can see your hand moving as you try to press the buttons. Or and some of them have a camera and so on, or can hear the sounds and so on. Uh, but yeah, so this is an article over at the IEEE where they show how your smartwatch could, uh, if it if it got some of that Android malware we just talked about on it, it could steal your ATM pin number. I guess my thing is that I. Uh, I'm 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 continually impressed with how much creativity these attackers have. That's absolutely unbelievable. Well, this particular one is from the white hat side, so it's just theoretical. But yeah, oh. well, uh, you know, we, when we saw the couple of the uh, um, the ATM skimmer videos that we saw recently, uh, some of those are yeah, they're putting quite a bit of effort into making these, like custom building hardware and like a phone battery and some other pieces soldered together and infrared camera and stuff just to steal your pin number. Two-way authentication, man. Two-way authentication. Microsoft's attempts to recruit interns is a bit of a barrel, uh, a barrel of cringe. And, yes. uh, and the so message is ridiculous. <laughs> did, did you see that email there? This is an actual email sent by actual Microsoft to, to students they want to hire for the summer. Hey, I am Kim, a Microsoft University recruiter. My crew is coming down from our HQ in Seattle to hang with you and the crowd of Bay interns at Interapplausa on 7-Eleven. We're throwing an exclusive party right now uh, for our San Francisco office, and you're invited. There will be hella norms, lots of drinks, and best beats. And just like last year, we're breaking out the Yammer beer pong tables. Uh, yes, there's going to be hella noms and something drinks. It's like, what the hell? Uh, I think Microsoft that's, that's is not, taking... That's not a meme used by... that. Our, ours isn't making up that meme. Microsoft is doing this. I think they're trying it's to get away from that terrible. whole corporate infrastructure, corporate feel, and I think they've yeah. taken it just a little yeah. too far, like to the point of unprofessionalism. Like beyond unprofessionalism to just ridiculous. I don't know. That didn't. Even, I can't even read the bloody email. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's about what it amounts to. Um, so your motherboard, uh, or, uh, uh, sorry, password. No, we're on this one. We're on yes. uh, passwords. So motherboard.com. So, uh, yeah. So motherboard.com, uh, by Vice, uh, has a article about a recent court case where uh, somebody was found guilty of violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because he used a password that, he was, that was shared with him by another user. So using... So if I if I know Noah's password for something and I use it, that can be considered a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and mean I get five years in prison because I was unauthorized to use that computer because I was using Noah's password, not mine. That seems legitimate. Yeah. However harsh. When you gave me the password on purpose? 
But isn't that, isn't that, I mean, couldn't it be argued that that's prima facie evidence of me giving you permission to use the computer? Exactly. Or something. Maybe it wasn't, because I, I don't know all the details of the case. You can go read the story. But the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is horrible and full of, you know, they, they've convicted people of things that weren't a crime, basically. Uh, and a bunch of, they, they basically use it to be able to set up to say, all right, um, we found we caught you hacking or something. We're going to charge you with all these things, and you'll spend eighty years in jail. Or, without a trial, you can take this plea deal and only spend a couple years in jail, hmm. uh, and use it to just bully people. It's it's no. a very horrible law that needs a lot of addressing. Neither way is great. Well, it yeah. turns out Avast uh, acquired rival AVG for one point three billion to create yeah. a so- software security giant. Yeah, uh, so, so apparently between the two, their uh, software is installed on 400 million endpoints. Interestingly, a bunch of AVG's endpoints are actually, they have like a cell phone virus scanner. Uh, and so being on uh, mobile devices uh, is a market that Avast really wants to get into. Hmm. But I after, can see if, why, if, actually, because they, yeah. I think they're losing the desktop. I think the desktop is losing its share pretty quick. Yeah, uh, but... If you think back to this, the Symantec article from last week and realize that Google did similar things to Avast and AVG, it's like putting those two together isn't necessarily going to help very much. Now, now this is something that I, uh, I, 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 uh, we are a, uh, we are the IT contractor for the Windy Windies in uh, in Grand Forks. So this story kind of caught my attention. Apparently, Wind, uh, Windies has its POS malware disclosure page owned. Yeah, so they have a page where you can actually, uh, where they post an update about the fact that their uh, point-of-sale systems were getting hacked and had malware on them. And uh, apparently there is a cross-site scripting vulnerability in the website where they're admitting that their point-of-sales terminals got hacked and an attacker was able to inject whatever code they wanted into that page. So any, say, Wendy's customer that was going to Wendy's website, the official Wendy's.com, to learn whether or not their credit card was stolen, uh, would get the JavaScript malware. That's now, great. In, in this That's good planning. Case, the example is actually running. Uh, all it does is pop up an alert box that says "Hello World," mm-hmm. but it's just a proof of concept. It means any attacker could do it with, you know, the Angular exploit kit and and own those people's computers. Right. Right. It's like, oh, it turns out Wendy's, uh, it wasn't the Wendy's at your, near your house that got hacked, so your credit card wasn't stolen, but you now have malware on your computer, so the next time you use your credit card, they'll steal it then. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the least of, <laughs> might be on the low side of Wendy's uh, IT yeah. concerns. All right, uh, so this article is... Uh, trending past, yeah, pass pass thoughts, password, cybersecurity. Um, I'll yeah, be honest so with you, I don't know much about of, this. Right. Uh, so this is one of these devices you wear on your head, uh, and it can read what you're wanting to do. Uh, and they're like, hey, well, let's replace passwords with you just think about a certain thing, and that unique brainwave you make when you're thinking about that thing will be your password. You know, I actually, I was, I, I actually, I didn't see it in this article, but I was, I was listening to something about that is actually super interesting because, um, so basically they, they, they send you through, uh, you, they basically have you think of, of, of a, of a, of a thought and mm-hmm. then they record the way that your brain processes that thought or a series of thoughts. And that is infinitely more complex than 
obviously even a past phrase, you know, is is mm-hmm. the is the traditional wisdom. Um, and but I've I have not seen it productized like this. This is well, the, very this isn't quite productized. It's, it's still research at the University of California, but yeah. Well, but I mean, this does this device exist? Uh, I like there's a prototype at a university, but it's not for sale yet. Right. Obviously. I guess my point but is like the last time I saw yet. this, it was like a it was like people with shaved heads and like electrodes like sticky it all over the yeah. place to make it work. So the fact uh, they've gotten I've that far seen, is pretty cool. There's a very early version of something like this that OCZ tried to productize before they went out of business, uh, where it was a controller for video games, and you would just like think forward or left or right. You know, I think <laughs> I WASD with this thing you put on your head. I think I actually saw a deal uh, where they were using this for um, people that have uh, like their. Yeah, yeah, or I think it was in in this guy's case. I think it was he was like a a, a paraplegic, um, and he was able to regain some of the or quadriplegic, and he was able to regain some of the use of his arms um, by being connected to this computer. And they 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 you know they would tell him think about lifting your arm up, and they would record that that muscle uh, series, and then they would play it back into a uh, into an electrical uh, you know muscle stimulator thing that that simulated his muscle and they got it down to like a half a second so it was actually like super useful for him yep. um let's see here next, next one is just a funny tweet so make sure okay. you show the website okay all right so this is uh this is upon all the things yes i got this, so this right? is uh, the definition of uh sophisticated attack so it's just a fake deck uh uh, dictionary definition so sophisticated in reference to of a data breach computer attack or apt campaign being of ultra low sophistication <laughs> so a sophisticated attack is when it's not very sophisticated especially occurring because an employee gave away their password or ran an executable email attachment or were uh the supposed sophistication of the breach was previously being uh, strenuously asserted so it turns out that it wasn't a sophisticated Russian campaign using zero days. It was a sophisticated attack persuading the CTO to double-click the readme.exe attachment. <laughs> yeah. That's nuts. The, um, the uh, Frontier is teamed with uh, AT&T to block Google Fiber access to utility polls. Now, this story actually comes at kind of an interesting time because Rakai and I have been having like an entire uh, debate over uh, ISPs and what they should be able to do and what they shouldn't be able to do. But the article says AT&T is getting some help from Frontier Communications in its attempt to block Google Fiber progress in Kentucky. As we reported in February, AT&T sued the local government in Louisville and Jefferson County, Kentucky, uh, for a stop to a new ordinance designed to give Google Fiber and similar companies access to utility poles. Although Frontier... Yeah, so this is the uh, the interesting thing with this one is you can almost understand AT&T's point on this one. Uh, so the city passed a law that said... Uh, I think anyone, rather than even just Google, can go and start swinging things up on the utility poles that are owned by AT and T. Mm-hmm. Now, why AT and T was ever allowed to own them is maybe another thing. Uh, but um, well, who paid the to put them, who, who paid to put that infrastructure in place to begin with? Right. Uh, well, I think it was the government when they owned AT and T. So it's hard to say. Uh, but the other part of it was apparently it includes the right to move cables around on the utility pole. And so, you know, as AT&T, I can understand not wanting Google to go and start moving your stuff around to, to make room for their stuff. But at the same time, uh, you know, AT&T, so Google having to ask AT&T's permission to put stuff on the pole is one thing, mm-hmm. but AT&T denying it without a good reason is another thing too, right? Right. And so I think the government's only having to do this because AT&T wouldn't play ball in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... 
because of the way AT&T is wording it, they come out sounding semi-reasonable. And Sure. They're probably not. They're AT&T, right? They're not reasonable. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had mixed luck with, uh, or m- mixed, uh, it seems like every time I look at AT&T, I have, I have mixed feelings. Although, um, you know, if you, if you go back in their history long enough, they get a long history of, of, uh, of uh, screwing Terrible. the small guy, right? Yeah. So, you know, in the end, I think, especially within the cities and so on, the the city should own and maintain the telephone poles so that they can they yep. can rent them back to AT and T sure. as a source of income to maintain them. Sure, and it means that they can also have these other ones, right? Yeah, I mean the only thing the the big thing is is I have I have a real problem when one company spends a bunch of money to put it in infrastructure and then the city goes, oh that was a great idea, that's really useful, let's take that over because we could use that. That's where right. I have a problem. So as long as the city's doing it from the get go, I think that's a great situation. Yeah, uh, or or there's at least you know, uh, and a drain type thing where they would buy the telephone poles from AT&T. Probably not at the rate AT&T would like, but at least, you know, not just stealing them. Right. The yeah. Uh, tell me about this uh, extreme online security measures. And we, you know, there's this, there's this picture of, of Mark Zuckerberg in the tape over his laptop that was going around the yeah. internet for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So this is an article at The Guardian, which is a big newspaper, uh, talking about these steps you should take for uh, your security like secure your email it's like outlook and other email clients let you install a personal security certificate it's like that doesn't actually make your email any more secure it's basically pgp type thing so there's some use in that but it doesn't actually help your security or make anything more encrypted right uh and it's like get virtual running programs in virtual environments actually it looks like they might have changed this out from under me because uh, some of these this device isn't terrible anymore but originally when the article came up all the advice was terrible <laughs> Yeah, they, uh, you know, giving a whole separate PC is probably overkill. Um, you know, clean out your system is you know the way they've got uh, a bunch of these things set up is probably a bad idea. Uh, this one is definitely bad. Switch to hipster applications. Uh, it's like because you're using Opera as your browser, maybe it'll have fewer vulnerabilities. Probably security through obscurity is no security at all. Exactly. Uh, and then they're like. Yeah. So there's, anyway, they got a bunch of uh, bad advice on here, like uh, set your router into stealth mode. It's like, what, what does what that is, even mean? Yeah, what is stealth mode? Oh, I don't they're actually uh, turning, uh, hiding your SSID. Turns out that doesn't actually hide it from anything. So don't do that. <laughs> it makes uh, it harder to connect my Roku. Yeah. Uh, now, did you say hit. don't use Windows, which maybe isn't bad advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have a couple other ones in here. But... Uh, it's typical reporter that doesn't know anything about computers, just copy and pasting things. So uh, a man built a $53,000 computer uh, yeah. <laughs> with 40,000 transistors and 10,000 lights all to play Tetris. Yeah, the bottom link there has a video. Uh, oh, yeah? Make more sense. See the very, very bottom link? Nope, no, no, no. Up, up, up. Just the oh, last. Oh, right er, here? Down. Ah, I see it. That one. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Do we have sound on this machine? Uh, but basically, uh, other than once, once he pans over from the giant uh, screen he's got there, uh, the big thing you see is actually it's showing the inner workings and the state of the computer as it's doing it. No kidding. Around uh, about 40,000 transistors and about 10,000 LEDs. It's about so you can actually see there's the whole state machine of the game as it's processing. And you can actually visualize all the internals of the computer. Long, as it's happening. Two meters tall. Weighs about all half right. a ton. 
Man, this uh, this internet uh, coming and going thing is it's really yeah, getting to me. Internet is no good today. I know, I know, it's horrible. Thank you, Comcast. Thank you, Comcast. Thank you, Comcast. Thank you, thank you, Comcast. I'll do the beard. Huh? All the, the beard is stealing all the internet. No, no, I think the beard is trying to uh, is trying to keep this show here going. Yep. Uh, anything else you want to mention before we wrap, Alan? Uh, no, that's actually the end of the show, so he doesn't have to try so hard anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, you, you, before we get out of here, uh, make sure to head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Check out what's going on, uh, all the show times, and that when Mr. Chris Fisher takes off for a vacation and Mr. Noah's filling in and I have to travel on a day, and so Unfiltered doesn't happen, you'll be aware of that. Jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the contact link, then you can send email or you can send messages into any of the respective shows or general comments if you'd like to voice your concerns as always if you have any complaints alan at jupiterbroadcasting.com i'm at kernel linux on twitter alan where can people find you uh alan jude on twitter uh and yep and then uh be sure to tune in live next week it's uh 1 p.m or 1300 uh pacific time where chris and the rest of the jb is or that's uh 4 p.m eastern or 2000 utc uh, or, like Noah said, if you go to Jupiter Broadcasting's calendar, you can get that converted to your local time zone, uh, and then you'll be less confused. Because we have magic scripts. Yes. Not magic configs, because those are bad. Magic <laughs> yeah, scripts. magic scripts. That's good. the good one. All right, guys, thanks so much for tuning into the TechSnap program, and we'll see you. Well, I won't. I'll be gone. Chris will be here right back here next week. 